Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. Our guest today is Daniel Winchester, Associate Professor of Sociology at Purdue University. Dan tells us about his initial encounter with Pierre Bourdieu's famously dense writings, his application of Bourdieu's ideas in his master's thesis on Islamic faith, and his more recent turn to American pragmatism to supplement his use of Bourdieu in studying the process of converting to Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Thanks for joining us here today, Dan. No problem, Kyle. Happy to be here. So we are here to talk about Pierre Bourdieu. I'm wondering if you could just give us a, a short introduction to who he was or, or what he's known for. Sure. So as the name probably alludes to, he was a French theorist born to a relatively working class family in a small village in France and ended up being one of the most prominent sociologists in, in modern history. Part of the reason, the main reason that he became so prominent is he developed an impressive theoretical system that really tried to integrate these two poles, opposite poles of, of social theory. One pole emphasizing the sort of agency and creativity of human action and the other uh, sort of structural or social forces that constrain and dictate action. And he tried to bring those two sides of sociological theory together in his uh, famous theory of practice and developed a number of important theoretical concepts along the way. Do you get a sense that he is widely read in the larger discipline, or is he someone who's in specific niches? No, he is read across a number of different subfields in sociology, read and cited and utilized. So uh, I believe I read recently that he is one of the most cited, if not the most cited, social scientist in, in history. So he's obviously had a big influence on, on our field and outside of it as well. He's, he's widely read in anthropology and, and political science and cultural studies and a number of disciplines. One of the areas that, that you call home is, or subfields that you call home, is the study of religion or sociology of religion. Has, is he influential in that area as well? You know, at least in the American context, I don't think Bourdieu's ideas were as influential, as as well-cited in the sociology of religion as they were in other subfields, like the, the sociology of culture, for example, or in, in the area of social inequalities. I think that has started to change quite a bit over the last decade or so, though, as sociologists of religion have kind of gotten away from making the question of, is religion going to thrive or is it going to die, the, the primary question that they focus on, and they've been beginning to ask a number of other questions about religion outside of the, the classic secularization thesis. And so they've been using his ideas to ask questions about how religious practices and disciplines and rituals kind of inform people's daily lives, how they shape their sense of self, how religious institutions and communities can be thought of as fields in which people kind of struggle for position and various forms of social status. And so people have used Bourdieu's theories to study religion and ask questions about religion in those ways. And so even though he wasn't as prominent in the American sociology of religion in the past, I think that has definitely changed in recent years. How did you first become aware of Bourdieu's ideas, or when did you first hear about him? My first 
exposure to Bordeaux's writing and his ideas was in my very first semester of graduate school. So I did my master's degree in sociology at the University of Missouri and then went to the University of Minnesota uh, for my PhD. So my very first semester of graduate school at Missouri, I, t- I took kind of the introductory graduate level social theory seminar. And and our, our professor at, I think, closer to the end of that semester, assigned us, uh, assigned each student in the class a different book. So we weren't reading the same book for a particular week. We all were going to read something different, contemporary theorists, and, and discuss them. And and I and, and actually one a friend of mine, another classmate, were given um, Pierre Bourdieu's book. Um, it was called In Other Words, and it was a series of essays um, by Bourdieu. And I remember being very confused at first, in part because, well, one, Bourdieu is a dense writer. It's it's uh, no one will ever tell you that that reading Pierre Bourdieu is an is an easy, breezy read. So it's difficult to begin with. The other problem was this particular collection, I think, already assumed some familiarity with Bourdieu's work, um, which as a first semester graduate student, I did not have. Um, so my first introduction to Bourdieu's work, I was, I was confused. I was having a really hard time digesting what, uh, what he was trying to impart to his readers. But I also remember thinking that this was somebody who was trying to do something very ambitious. He was trying to create these large systematic theories of, of society and social action in the contemporary era, era when, when most sociologists weren't, weren't trying to do that type of work anymore. So I remember being both really impressed and excited about his ideas, but also mixed with about 60% kind of confusion and frustration because I wasn't quite prepared <laughs> to, to deal with these ideas quite yet. What do you think makes his writing so difficult? Because I know from my own experience trying to teach his ideas in the classroom, and then also being in the same situation as you, being exposed to these ideas and being like, something's interesting, something interesting is happening here. There's something important, but I don't quite get what's going on. Do you have a sense of what makes his writing so difficult to grasp, especially in that first encounter before you figure out his kind of rhythm or the way he builds his logic? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I think there are a few different factors involved in in what makes Bourdieu difficult. Part of it has to do with the, the cultural context. The academic context of the United States and France um, is different. And, and I think in, in France, the, the writing style is, is a bit different. I think, I think in, in, French and, in France and maybe in Europe more generally, there's more of an appreciation and expectation for academic writing to have a bit more of a aesthetic flourish to it. Whereas in the United States, we're more prone to uh, emphasize clarity and, and the graspability of ideas. So there could be a cultural aesthetic thing going on there. Also, of course, we're reading, most of the time reading Bourdieu, who wrote in French through a translation into English. And sometimes that presents some difficulties especially when you're trying to translate abstract concepts and complicated arguments. But I think another reason and a more substantive reason is that I think in part Bourdieu wrote like this in this complex way, in part because he was trying to break some habits of thinking 
that soci- sociologists of his time period had gotten into. And, and again, one of those habits of thinking was sort of creating a dichotomy or, or a, a big distinction between agency and structure, uh, human practice and social systems. And he really wanted to emphasize this way that these two things were were connected together and trying to bring about a synthesis between two types of theory that had largely been seen as a, a, as a as opposing one another and so i think part of the reason he wrote in the way that he did was to try to shake up if you will some some habits of thinking that, that theorists said of his time were were prone to fall into so so that may have been a more strategic reason, uh, along with the others I mentioned. Yeah, and, and so considering the challenge of the text and, and the complexity of his ideas, were you immediately drawn back after that encounter in your social theory class, or what eventually did bring you back to the to reading his work? I don't think I was immediately drawn back. I mean, I, I, I certainly thought it was interesting, but I, I wasn't immediately uh, decided that I was going to be someone who was going to, to specialize with in Bordeaux or use him prominently in my own research and thinking. What changed is I was actually, you know, a couple of years later, I was taking a contemporary theory course, sort of a more upper level uh, grad theory course, at the same time that I was working on my master's thesis research. And so my master's thesis was actually on, on contemporary converts to Islam in the United States. I was doing an ethnography of converts in this local Islamic uh, community in Missouri. And um, one of the things that I was trying to think about and research and write about, the sort of effect and significance of all of the different daily religious practices that these converts took on as part of becoming Muslim, becoming new Muslims. And so for for listeners out there who may not be all that familiar with with Islamic religious practice, I mean, one of the things that you do as a Muslim is you, for example, pray five times a day, and you do so in a in a ritualized way that involves you know, particular prayers and sayings, but also moving your body in a in a prescribed way that involves you know in in several instances prostrating yourself to the ground, putting your forehead on the ground, and you do this at, at set times. Um, throughout the day, five set times, ranging from very early in the morning when you first wake up to before you go to bed at night. You also take on practices like fasting, like during the holy month of Ramadan, where you go without food and drink during the daylight hours for a solid month, where, you know, you change the, you also change the way that you dress. This is especially significant and noticeable for women, many of whom when they uh, when they convert, start wearing uh, hijab or or the veil. So I was trying to think about, you know, what's what what what's the effect? What's the significance of these types of bodily practices for what people do beyond, you know, just what you know the sort of theology says, beyond what the <clears throat> what the imams and the scholars say, beyond what is written in the text, just the actual doing of these things on a daily basis. And at the time when I read Bourdieu, the second time around, this time we read Outline of a Theory of Practice, which was his sort of first and maybe still most influential major uh, book, where he is 
basically out of field work he's done with peasants in these small villages in Algeria. He's trying to basically theorize how do we think about these daily ritual activities and practices that people are involved in and how they can make sense and, and be significant and create meaningful distinctions and even meaningful identities and subjectivities outside of some sort of abstract code or set of rules, how the doing itself matters. And so and so part of what drew me to this work the second time around was were his sort of analyses of daily practices around home life and farming and village life and how these daily practices created a number of different distinctions between between for example men and women between the sort of sacred and profane elements of the of the calendar year and i use that work to influence my own thinking and research on how practices like prayer and fasting and covering um, or hijab mattered and were significant within the conversion process. And so to give you a more concrete example of what that might look like, I started thinking about prayer, not just as kind of an expression of an already existing belief, right? Like I'm a Muslim, I'm supposed to pray, therefore I pray. I started thinking of it also as a way that people came to uh, really embody and experience this belief of being Muslim, of Muslim, of being a Muslim as one who sort of submits themselves to to Allah, or to God, and so there's no there's there's no really more experientially effective way to do that than to kind of prostrate your body to the ground five times a day at set times, and so you know in in my own research, I actually as part of sort of a participant observation exercise started doing some of those practices myself with the sort of guidance of, of people in the community and, and began to see, even when I didn't share the same belief structure or theology of these Muslim converts, trying to remember praying five times a day and doing it correctly really did have significant effects on my daily life. I was, um, regardless of what I thought cognitively, right, I was... I was submitting myself to God's time on a on a at set times throughout the day, and I was you know placing my head to the ground and sort of submitting myself bodily. And so I began to sort of see how these practices had these semi-autonomous effects and significance that Bourdieu's theory of practice would would was was saying that they did. So that became a really fruitful way for me to think about the importance and cultural significance of practices outside of, you know, thinking about them as an expression of some sort of abstract sim symbol or belief system. So his influence on you was not just how you were able to theorize a field, but it sounded like it also had a direct influence on your methodological approach when you were doing this research. Yeah, absolutely. Part of it was that, and again, this was this was in part influenced by what the people I was I was doing research on and with were telling me. You know, they were telling me to really understand the significance of prayer or the significance of fasting. I can't just tell you about it, and I can I can talk to you about it all day, but you don't really understand until you do it. And of course, this implied that there was something about doing it that couldn't be grasped just by uh, couldn't be grasped in 
in discourse or even the most sort of accurate or, or specified theology. And so I sort of took Bourdieu's ideas about, about practice and, and this concept of habitus that he had, which was about the way that you know, practices actually influence our self at a very deep bodily level, at the level of sort of habit and disposition. And I took those into the field and I, and I applied them not only to the converts that I was interviewing and trying to understand and explain, but also my own experiences and methodology in the field. Do you think one of the reasons that you connected at a much deeper level or had a deep, deeper level understanding when you read Bourdieu again was not just because of your intellectual growth, but it sounds like having a project that you could take his ideas to and apply them to allowed you to get ideas that otherwise would have just remained in this kind of distant, abstract level on, on the page. Like, yeah, that was really important, in fact. I mean, I think that was the main difference between the the first time I read Bourdieu and that second time is that I actually had a project and some real life experience to and, and empirical data to to kind of put in conversation with these abstract ideas because the reading itself didn't necessarily get easier. I mean, Bourdieu didn't uh, all of a sudden become an easy read, but and you didn't you didn't get that much smarter in two years right. where <laughs> suddenly you can make your way through more difficult sentences. It would be nice to think that, but probably not. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. I don't know. Uh, I think the other thing that helped is that outline of a theory of practice Bourdieu's book that I was reading that second time around was actually based on fieldwork as well. So he's developing uh, a lot of most influential concepts out of his observations of Algerian peasant life and these really nice, rich descriptions of people's activities and ritual actions in these in these communities that were that were absent from that that first collection of essays I read. So I think, yeah, having that empirical data both in the book itself and more importantly, uh, working on my own empirical project was really was really helpful and made the ideas really hit home, which I guess makes sense in light of the fact that one of Bourdieu's major theoretical points is that social action and practice, what people are doing is much more about a practical logic, the logic of doing than it is the execution of some sort of theoretical abstract set of ideas. And so to really understand it, you have to kind of be a part of it and, and and be involved in the doing of it. Have these ideas about practice or his way of theorizing practice, has that continued to influence your work as you've gone on? Um, you gave us the example of your master's thesis, and you've you've done a few things since then. <laughs> have, has those, have those ideas continued to be present, or have you just kind of abandoned it as you shifted to new projects? No, it's, it's still his ideas, especially his ideas about the relationship between, between practice and habitus, or, you know, the, the repeated ways that we go about doing things and how those have an influence on our on our on our subjectivity on our on our self-experience those things have remained really influential to me so for example after my master's work and when i went to minnesota to do my phd i ended up doing a a more large-scale project on on religious conversion but this time with a different group on with converts to eastern orthodox christianity which uh are sort of the the 
the main religious tradition in Eastern Europe, Greek Orthodoxy, Russian Orthodoxy, but relatively small and unknown in the United States. But I learned in more recent decades that the, the Orthodox churches in the United States have become home to an increasing number of converts. And so I decided to take this interest in religious conversion that I had and, and really think about it in the context of this new case. And Bourdieu's ideas, while not the only theoretical inspiration I had when thinking through this data, still remained very prominent, especially in thinking through, again, the effects of religious practices and, and, and the way that those sort of shape our bodily habits and dispositions, um, and how those were really important and remained really important for thinking about how people change, not only in religious conversion, but even other processes of, of religious, or I'm sorry, other processes of identity change as well, that, that part of the way that we come to sort of inhabit a new type of self um, isn't just about changes in thinking, although those are certainly important, but also in the habitual ways that we go about doing things in everyday life. And so, so Bourdieu was still important there. You mentioned that there were some other theorists that you drew on as you continued this area of study. And who are some of those theorists that you found particularly useful to put in conversation with Bourdieu? Yeah, so I've found particularly the some of the American pragmatists, people like Dewey and, and George Herbert Mead, and Charles Pierce to be really interesting to put in conversation with the Bourdieu because both camps or both groups of theorists, if you will, are really interested in in starting where with practice itself, with really focusing on on what people are doing and 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 theorizing from the situated action and activities of what the actors themselves. The thing that I found useful about uh, the pragmatists is that they tend to have, uh, at least in my view, a bit more of a dynamic understanding of the interplay between bodily habit or habitus and our more creative and reflective capacities. When we are able to kind of turn back on what we're doing and, and, and think about it and reflect on it, maybe even critique and change it. And so one of the big things that I've I've tried to do with some of my more recent work is to take is to try to kind of integrate Bourdieu's focus on the logic of practice and and bodily habits and the way that we can sort of do things and get on with life without explicitly even thinking or theorizing about it much. Theor, you know, sort of synthesizing that perspective and and bringing it into conversation with theories that focus more on on discourse and how we talk about and reflect on things, especially dealing with and studying religion. Of course, what people do, their daily habits and rituals are very important, but people still do have more explicit beliefs and ideas about these things as well. And so it's become part of what I try to do is to try to think about the interaction between those two levels, both our bodily habits and our more sort of explicit ideas and theories about things about why we're doing them so it sounds like the his his underlying or his core theories still remain foundational to the work you do but now you're playing a little bit more on the edges to see how to expand upon his ideas or perhaps looking at empirical data that that suggests there is some parts that you can't fully explain would that be fair way of uh 
characterizing what you've been doing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think Bordeaux, you know, when I was just beginning to become my own independent researcher, right, a, 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 a baby sociologist, if you will, yeah. <laughs> um, I think I leaned uh, much more heavily on, on Bordeaux as kind of in terms of shaping my thinking about some of these things. But now as I've gotten a little more practiced, I'm, you know, now that I'm a uh, Teenager, teenager sociologist, maybe that may be a way to help me feel young again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll, uh, uh, I his work is more of an important sort of theoretical tool in in my toolkit. So I see him as extremely useful and important for some of the ways that I approach my research, but I also am more likely to see some of the uh, the limitations and when it's more when it makes more sense to sort of go elsewhere or, or combine something that Bourdieu's done with some other idea or concept. So one of the things that I find fascinating is the way you're talking about still drawing on these central ideas about how Bourdieu writes about uh, habitus or about practice, but then you're also drawing on pragmatists who give a little bit more of, I guess, framework to talk about agency or the actors being a bit more reflective about the decisions they're making. What does that look like in your research? So, you know, how how do we how do you see that play out? Yeah. So I can think of a couple of recent examples from work I've done uh, using the data from this more recent project on Eastern Orthodox converts. So one article I wrote was about about fasting in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. There's a lot of in, in Eastern Orthodox Christianity you have to fast quite often, especially around the holidays of, of Christmas and, and Easter, or, or Pascha as it's called in Eastern Orthodoxy. And so you're you're really drastically kind of reducing your, your food intake and you're limiting the types of food you eat. Like, you know, you basically go on kind of a vegan diet for for sometimes over a month, like six weeks for the for the Easter fast. And so I wanted to understand kind of how new members of the church make sense of that practice, how they experience it, how they make sense of it. Because when people first start, most people are actually kind of wary of it, and they kind of don't get it, and they aren't looking forward to being kind of hungry and not being able to eat their favorite foods for weeks at a time. And and probably unsurprisingly, right, uh, that doesn't necessarily sound fun to me either. But one of the things that I noticed is that over time, people started to get it. They started to to experience and understand the practice as being kind of vital to um, understanding the condition of, of their self, of their spiritual condition, their soul, if you will. And so to kind of understand how that change happened, I looked at how the kind of embodied experience of fasting was connected to or 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 related to these more theological or abstract interpretations about sort of morality and spiritual development within Eastern Orthodoxy itself. And so how people connected, for example, experiences of sort of habitually reaching towards food that they're not supposed to eat, right? Because especially when you're first starting to fast, you know that you're supposed to be following all these rules about what you're not supposed to eat. But of course, we all have these really strong habits where we, you know, we reach into the food and we grab, reach into, reach into the fridge and we grab, you know, um, something that we're not supposed to eat or we grab a beer that we're not supposed to drink when we're fasting. And so how people can kind of came to interpret those, those moments 
as sort of expressive or as a metaphor for the way that they are prone to things like sin. In the Orthodox understanding, sin isn't something that we often, that people often try to do explicitly. It's not something they think out, but it's a matter of habit. It's a matter of sort of reaching for things that we're not supposed to. And so how these body, bodily experiences kind of served as a metaphor for more abstract understandings of religious concepts, like sin, like the soul, like virtue. And so then over time, right, the sort of bodily experience and the concept kind of work together to create this larger world of meaning in which converts are, are, are being, you know, they're being socialized into. And so that was a way of sort of combining Bourdieu's understandings of the, the significance of bodily experience and bodily practice and sort of bringing that together, synthesizing that with understandings of, of discourse and our ability to sort of conceptualize and symbolize things. And so I drew on a number of different works to kind of make that connection, but, but the pragmatists were, were definitely uh, an influence there, along with some stuff in, in modern cognitive science and phenomenology. So um, that was one particular example. As a way to wrap up the conversation, I like to ask everyone in a sense, sell the theorist to us. So you've had various projects where you've engaged with these ideas. You've also taught social theory in the classroom and had students read Bourdieu's work. So what are some of the main advantages of engaging with these ideas, especially considering what you told us about your own first encounter? The sentences are long, the language isn't always easy. Why would you still assign this to an undergraduate or a graduate student or tell the larger discipline that they should read this stuff, considering how difficult it can be. Yeah, I think especially since since Bourdieu has you know, he has a reputation at this point for being a relatively difficult read. I think one of the things that I that I tell people, and especially undergraduate students when I'm teaching theory, is that you know it, it's worth the effort, in part because Bourdieu really helps all of us to understand that you know in the in the arena of social life, all of us have um, a great deal of, of expertise and knowledge, and that most of that knowledge and expertise is not, in fact, the kind of knowledge and expertise that, that social theorists produce about social life. That's kind of the ironic thing. Um, even though Bourdieu is sort of theorizing about these things in these really abstract terms, his main point is that in different social contexts or what he called fields, most people don't even have to think about what they're doing too often. They have this, this habitus or what he called a feel for the game that allows them to be sort of expert about what types of activities and, and what types of positions and relationships that they need to take up. And so, you know, one of the things that, that uh, my students tend to get really interested in is, is thinking about context in which they have a really ingrained expertise about how to how to go on and, and get things done in the world and also thinking about contexts in which they felt kind of like a fish out of water where they haven't been able to sort of navigate that social space very well and 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 coming to the realization that that didn't have necessarily a lot to do with the explicit information that they lacked or the explicit ideas that they lacked about that context, but really not having their exposure to the activity itself. 
one of the things that we talk about is how Bordeaux um, uses sports metaphors a lot. Uh, the feel for the game being one that I that I just mentioned. And so, you know, the basic idea being if you've never played, for example, baseball before, and then someone throws you a rule book and says, OK, now you can go play. Right. You'd probably still go out there and be absolutely awful at baseball and not really understand how the game works until you play it for a number of, of weeks, months, even years. And so students are learning and recognizing that this works in, in quite the same way for thinking about differences in social context and social class positions. Why, for example, navigating college is so easy for some people and so hard for others, or why understanding things like abstract art or opera seems to come naturally to some people, while for the rest of us it may seem completely confusing and obtuse, has a lot to do with whether we've had the opportunities to be exposed to that particular game or arena of social life. And, and I think once students get past some of the language and into the core ideas, they really see it as profound and insightful to understanding the social worlds in which they live. And I think that's the same for for graduate students and, and faculty as well. All right, that's a perfect spot to end. So thank you again for joining us today, Dan. All right, thanks, Kyle, it was fun. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.